Welcome back to another episode of Praxis Pedagogy Podcast. In this episode, we have Jen Wicks, who is the Director of Teaching and Learning Innovation at College of North Atlantic in Newfoundland, Canada. She's also a certified executive coach. We talk about all things education, coaching, some leadership peppered into this episode. Sit back, relax, enjoy, or plug in the headphones, go for a walk, take some notes if you can. It's going to be great. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this. We'll catch you on the other side. Take care. Y'all ready? Y'all ready? Y'all ready? Good. Here we go. Three, two, one. One. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Praxis Pedagogy Podcast. Whew. I'm feeling a little uh, little tired this morning, but I'm doing okay. How you doing, Sally? Doing great, actually. It's Friday. <laughs> yeah. So, yes. It seems yeah. very exciting to, you know, to be Friday again. Something very exciting about a Friday morning. <laughs> I know. Uh, yeah, it's all good. And Sally, we have a very special guest back with us. Round yes. two. It's getting I to be know. a bit of a pattern with people, but mm-hmm. this is good. I like it. I like I it. We have last word saying you will come back. So it's pretty exciting <laughs> today to see. I'm going to let you introduce our guest. Oh, thank you. Well, we have Jen Wicks with us this morning again and uh, from sunny Newfoundland. Although it's at, well, it's noon in Newfoundland right now where we're recording at 730 in the morning here. So is it always sunny in Newfoundland, Jen? It's probably like uh, minus 40 right now. Yeah, I, I think you might be uh, overly optimistic about the light. <laughs> Just the lighting. <laughs> Just the lighting. <laughs> well, you can tell by my lighting that it's not very optimistic over here. It's just a little <laughs> subdued. But uh, once the coffee kicks in, then everything will be good. You'll get there. <laughs> All right. Hey, what you been up to since last time we talked, Jen? Oh, well, it was early October when I talked to you last. And yeah. um Episode 41 for those of us. Who yeah. So we've had some big changes, actually. My um, stepdaughter came to live with us, with, live with us from the UK. She's uh, okay. 13 years old. Ooh. So um, I know you've, do you have kids? A four. You have four kids. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> imagine if they just showed up one day. <laughs> it wasn't exactly like that, but she, you know, we've got this new person living in our house, um, you know, nice. a little grown up. Uh, so big changes there. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. I, I have that with my son every once in a while. He comes out of his room and we're like, you're still alive. This is a good thing. <laughs> we have a son. We have a son. <laughs> He's back. Well, we always knew he was alive because the fridge empties out every two or three mm-hmm. days. Right. And, you know, we leave stuff on the counter and it's kind of like having a, you know, a 200 pound mouse in your house. Cause it's just, you leave <laughs> stuff on the counter and morning it's gone and it's the year-round yeah. Santa, isn't it? Exactly. You know, that's what it is. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So we know we know he's still alive, but uh, it's kind of like Sasquatch. When if you see him, you know, take a picture because it may not be it may be a while in daylight uh, as well. Yeah. Then, so yeah. I'm just thinking. You said from the UK. So not only do you have a young person, a 13 year old joining you, you actually have a 13 year old from a slightly different culture. Mm. Yes. Yes. Which I'm sure is, I'm sure actually could be quite exciting at times. 
you know what? It's it's been really nice having her here, and uh, my husband's from the UK, so uh, mm. I've already gone through the transition of of learning how to um, speak this this language. Uh, <laughs> Funny, <laughs> you know, I go we through that every week. I go through separated. that every week. <laughs> Separated by a common language, we always say. Um, so yeah, I've been through that already. Uh, it's been lovely having her here. She's, you know, breath of fresh air. She's going to school now. She had a period of self-isolation. That was tough for her. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's really kind of waking me up again to this idea of, you know, how important social connection is for for young people, I guess for everyone, but particularly uh, at that age. So yeah, yeah. lots of learning. Wow. Mm -hmm. And 13, that's a perfect year, right? Hey, <laughs> just eat yeah. right into it, right? <laughs> so I bet all your coaching skills are coming into play right now too with a new 13-year-old in your house, Jen. Ah, there you go. You know, it's humbling because just when you think you got it, <laughs> you totally <laughs> yeah. don't, right? right. Uh, so you try and, yeah. and, you know, I think that's part of the coaching skill as well is understanding that we're not perfect and- yeah we're going to make mistakes and still, you know, kind of taking one step forward at a time and mm -hmm. having empathy, not only for others, but for ourselves. Yeah. It's too bad that the coaching uh, certification gods wouldn't uh, give you credit for kids, right. For all the hours <laughs> okay. that you're coaching your kids. And I'm not talking yeah, about sports, I'm just talking about life, right. Uh, or <laughs> coaching your spouse when you got kids and all that other stuff. So it's, uh, I wish they would count that, but uh, I would have been certified four times over by now. But. Anyway. Yeah, I find it interesting that um, in the year of COVID, I have heard more about coaching as a leadership style than I have ever heard about before. And, yeah. and I think, you know, I've been quite active in the circuit of educators for quite a while. And yet I, I'm not sure whether COVID has presented this platform that coaching really does um, you know, it melds with more so than, you know, times before, but it seems like it offers a way forward, you know, along with, um, I, I'm thinking back to the trade summit series, Jen, and I know that you were there for some of that. That was wonderful. We had attendees from as far East as you are, and then as far South as Trinidad and Tobago. And then, um, that we found out last week. We had an instructor with us all the time from California. Um, but I found as well with that, with Tim's presentation on design thinking, um, that I know design thinking has been around for a while as well. But it seems like COVID has brought us to this place, or many of us to this place, where we're looking for those different supports. Yeah, I think, yeah, exactly right. I mean, the coaching has certainly helped me through all of this. Um, and before this, you know, I've been through other big transitions in my life that coaching, you know, had I not gone through that process, uh, I don't know what that would have looked like. And it's not being a coach necessarily. A lot of people in my cohort, when I studied at Royal Roads in the coaching program, they were, you know, physicians who wanted to use a coaching approach with their patients. Uh, or they were parents who wanted to have a better relationship with their teenagers and they weren't necessarily going to go and become a coach. It's the skills of coaching. It's the mindset of coaching and what we call a coach approach 
that can apply to so many areas of your life and, you know, really um, help us to embrace that growth mindset, the resilience, the emotional agility that we need to get through the challenges of being a human being. Jen, are there any books that I can read that would help me in my coaching practice as I lead and, and live? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's, there's so many great resources. Um, One of the ones that I like, that's really super practical that, um, you know, you can just kind of keep on your desk sort of thing is um, the coaching habit uh, by Michael Bungay Stanier. uh, And it's the subtitle is say less, ask more and change the way you lead forever. Yeah. And what's cool about it is it just gives you seven questions. Uh, and, and it's this little toolkit that you can use, uh, in your everyday life. And you, you know, we've, I've already heard, uh, the word leadership come up a number of times already in this conversation, and it's becoming more and more apparent to me how important leadership is at every level of an organization, uh, in a family, this idea of personal leadership and leadership is not just for managers or people with a title. Leadership is something that we can do to take our own, you know, 100% responsibility um, where we can. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Now you got now you got me awake when you start bringing up the leadership <laughs> word. But um, yeah, it's it, it often starts with yourself first, right? Like you, you have to learn to lead yourself and understand yourself to really begin to do well in the leadership realm of leading others. Um, I, I'm I've, I've experienced that. I, I teach that. I, I've seen it. And, um, especially when you get into that context of organizational behavior, when you're, when you're looking at managing, supervising, leading, because they can all be the same thing and they can all be completely different too. Um, it's an approach and the skill set. And, um, you know, when you're, when you're talking about the seven questions and it's a great book, I have that book on my shelf and I've actually seen Michael at a leadership conference when conferences were still a thing. (laughs) Um, and uh, he, he delivers like over the top energy. Like he, he was fantastic. It was the art of leadership in Vancouver a number of years ago. And um, he was one of the keynotes and uh, it was great. And then I've seen him a bunch on podcasts and, you know, YouTube stuff and all that other stuff, but uh, really, really cool. And um, yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's in the, the, the coaching style, especially now, right. Are you finding that you're, you're, employing those skills a lot more with faculty in the institution or um, how are you seeing that play out? Yeah, that's a good question. So I, because of this, you know, where we're at with this COVID, I don't have tons of, of contact with faculty right now. So we do have workshops from time to time and we have conversations. Um, and I do think that I show up with these, you know, coaching skills and competencies in everything I do now. Um, But not as explicitly as I might do if I were able to, you know, get into, you know, campuses and classrooms and, and do the work that I had intended to do when I started this job in February, right before we uh, went into lockdown. Yeah. What do you think is the, 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 the number one barrier? What do you think is the biggest stumbling block for people when it comes to self-leadership and, and, and getting themselves organized and ready and what, 
what do you think that that number one or biggest stumbling block could be? Mm, you know, depending on the day that you ask me, I, I will have a different answer for this uh, well, it's today. <laughs> yeah. What's top of mind for me today is um, it's human to have this, I think, to have this victim uh, mindset. Mm. Things are happening to me particularly right now, things are tough. A lot of things are happening for people, very serious uh, things. So to, you know, to, to be able to sit back and say, you know, I recognize that these things are happening to me, but how can, what can I do with that? You know, how, what, how can I become a co-creator or a creator in this rather than just letting it happen to me and, and having this victim mindset. Uh, now, some things are, you know, I'm not talking about structural uh, inequity, and I'm not talking about things that, you know, clearly people do not have power over. I'm talking about, you know, Mandela, you know, the power over your your mind. Nobody can control how you think. Um, so, you know, looking at even that, um, what is my choice uh, in this situation? Hmm. How would you coach somebody through that process? Like if, if, if they've, if they're starting to become aware of that process, what would you say to them? Ooh, that's a really good question. We're just think, looking for some counseling here this, this morning. Is really yeah. Yeah. Right now, it's a so. plan really. Right. We'll send, we'll send, we'll pay the bill later, but. Uh. I love it. I, I think first and foremost, people need to feel heard. Hmm. So it, there can't be this ulterior motive of wanting to get them out of it. You know, as a coach, I don't try to get people unstuck. I, first of all, help them recognize where they are. And if they get there, that's, that's a big win. Having that self-awareness. Um, you know, sometimes that's all people need is to go, oh, yeah, wow, look, this is where I am. That's a really good starting point is to say, Oh yeah, I can hear that. I've got that victim voice again, or what, whatever the the language is that they use around that. So, I think first and foremost is acknowledgement. That's one of the keys of coaching: is really truly acknowledging what you hear people saying, or even yourself say, right? Or or yourself say, yes, exactly. Do you ever do you ever have those experiences where people just want to use you as a sounding board? Like they they may not want you to offer any solutions or any directions or even ask any questions. They just want you to sit there and listen as they pontificate and spew and rant and <laughs> cry and then come back full circle and go, okay, I'm good. Thank you. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I, you know, I think I used to do that a lot more to other people before I de developed more self-awareness. And I had a, a wonderful colleague in Qatar, uh, Cindy, who is also a good friend of mine. And I would go into Cindy's office and that's what I would do. You know, just something's on my mind and I would just kind of let her have it, you know, and she didn't mind because she's my friend. But when I started to do this coaching thing, I realized like, wow, I'm having an impact on Cindy. I'm not responsible for how Cindy feels, but I have a big emotional impact. I have uh, what 
you know, Susan Scott, uh, who wrote this book called Fierce Conversations, um, she talks about an emotional wake, like a boat, you know? So if you picture yourself like a, like I was this big cruise ship going into Cindy's office and leaving this massive wake <laughs> behind me uh, every time. And so once I recognize that, like, is that the kind of person that I want to be? Is that how I want to leave Cindy? Is that the impact that I want to have on her? Hmm. Then I could make some different choices. And one thing that we started to do was we would give each other a kind of time limit. I've heard other people do this before. You know, you've got three minutes to like get it all out there. And then we're not going to talk about that anymore. Or we're going to, you know, look at what's possible, what, you know, future actions you can take to change your situation. Sally, that kind of sounds like our episode sections that we used to have called just, just go for it. Just go. Yeah. yeah just go for it. <laughs> just go. <laughs> we really need Mike Smith from the yeah. undisclosed institution for that yes. one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it is interesting. I work with this, um, you know, one of my colleagues that I work with, a, uh, I've worked with a lot over the last year and it, he always says, um, you know, okay, that, that's great to hear all of this, but, you know, what's the solution? And so, you, you know, when you work with somebody with that kind of mind frame, they, you know, they no longer give you sort of a set time. It's just like, okay, so, you know, have you thought about the solution? And you're just like, oh, not yet, but I, you know, I will do. And I, what I've noticed is over the years, over this year is that gradually I, I spend less time talking about what the issue is and I'm more likely to come, come forward with an idea that is actually beginning with the solution that then, that, you know, we, we know the problem exists. And, um, and I just think how helpful it is because as you were talking about, you know, going into Cindy's office and, you know, I'm, I'm sure you weren't ranting, but I know for many years that was a behavior that was so normal in our department. And those of us that, you know, had great rapport with each other, we would probably spend more time doing that because there's a lot of humor with it as well. And you can, you know, you feel like you're supported, but it doesn't, it doesn't, um, I create that mindset that's looking for solutions. It actually, you, you become better at ranting. I think if nobody ever sort of just gently nudges you in the di a different direction, what can happen over the years is you have a group of people that it appears that they get on really, really well and they do, but a lot of it is based on, you know, just focusing on problems and, and finding humor in them maybe, but it's not as empowering. I think over the years, it probably um, ends up with this, like you said, that emotional wake really for many people that are involved. Yeah. And I think, you know, what does it do in the brain? How, what does that do for us neurologically? So uh, one of the things that I've learned over the years is that in a coaching session, for example, if you get a coaching client that comes in and that's all they want to do is just talk about all the problems all the time, there's a time and a place for that. But also as your coach, I'm not just your buddy to have a nice chat with. I want to bring value to you in some way. So what we work on is gently interrupting, you know, trying to help people to get out of that. Because if we let 
the client just continuously complain about the things that they already know are problems, it builds stronger neural pathways. It continues to grow in that direction rather than building new neural pathways in the direction that they want to go. That's a good point because I was going to ask you about that. Like, why why do people feel like they have a need to just spew forth? Right? <laughs> mm. uh, is it just some kind of release mechanism? Is it some kind of coping mechanism? Is it a processing mechanism? Is it a need for connection and validation? Is it is it purely just a some kind of you know psychotic moment almost <laughs> where they just they just need to offload? or all the above. Yeah, I think it's it's those everything that you talked about. Uh, I'm sure there's other, you know, scientific explanations for yeah. it what, about what happens in the brain when we confirm our own beliefs mm-hmm. uh, and and you know, just give in to that emotional state uh, and articulate it more and more. But is that, you know, and this goes back to the what we talked about last time about aligning our actions with our values. Mm -hmm. What do you want your life to look like? How do you want to show up in this life? And generally speaking, most people wouldn't say, I want to be the one who's known for complaining and focusing on problems. And um, as I hear myself talk, I'm thinking about my 13 year old stepdaughter. All the kids are talking about toxic positivity. Now, if you uh, are too positive and you don't want to let them talk about the the negative things, they'll accuse you of being, you know, toxically positive. Uh, <laughs> I love that. I yeah, know. Toxic I positivity. Know yes. <laughs> it's true. We Isn't do that need a juxtaposition, to. Juxtaposition, though? Isn't that a dichotomy? <laughs> well, it's when you, it's, it's when you deny that, you know, there are bad things happening or, uh, that people are allowed to have negative emotions. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Facebook so, would be a good example just, of that. Would, yeah. No, that, that's you know, a more sophisticated that. word than what I have, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Toxic positivity. Yeah. I guess there are some people that just mm-hmm. kind of rub me the wrong way. Cause it just seems like it doesn't seem to matter what happens. They're always like rainbows and unicorns. It's like, have mm-hmm. you looked out your bedroom window lately? Like, have you, you see the smoke coming up from the across the 49th parallel there? I, I don't know. <laughs> Interesting. <thinking> loud. <laughs> Interesting that's come from the younger generation, though. Or maybe maybe I just haven't been out for so long that I haven't realized <laughs> that this is yeah. everyday language now. But I find that so interesting. And I can see why that generation would need that language when you, you know, you look at Instagram, you look at Facebook, um, and we know that it's one of its issues is that people only post on their high moments. So you can see that that and the emotion. I, I watched Social Dilemma the other week, and that's quite a powerful documentary. So I could see why that generation would need to develop language that captures what is this, what is this feeling that I am experiencing when people around me only, only put out all this positivity about every aspect of their lives. 
Yes. I'm not sure where it came from. I'm not sure if it came from them or if they've just adopted it. And, and that's how I've found my way to, to that. Uh, I'm not sure, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting. Jen is now a pathway into all things tea. Right. And you realize that, right. don't you? <laughs> did Newfoundland ever really go into lockdown, Jen? That's a serious question. Like did Newfoundland ever really go into any kind of serious lockdown? Oh my goodness. Did we? Yeah. I mean, we got sent home from work. <laughs> you have uh, to think about it. Probably well, I'm no. Like, also what's, what does like, is there a definition of lockdown? Um, yeah. Like in your house, don't go to stores. Don't, don't have people over. Don't go to other people's places. Like don't go to places of worship. Don't, don't do anything except like stay in your house. One person to the grocery store, all that stuff. Yeah. Um, we, I'm probably not the best person to ask. I was working from home when all this happened. I just was like totally focused on my own here. life. There's, there's a lockdown? Oh, Wait, this is why we're at home. Oh, this is why we work from home. Okay. Oh, okay. Well, that's yeah, fine. That's right. um, but no, I think we were still allowed to shop and things. It was just, if you had come from somewhere else, you had to self-isolate. Um, yeah. So I don't think we had a true lockdown yet. Uh, like restaurants were closed though in the beginning. Oh, okay. That, um, that's part of it. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So we, we did have that restaurants and businesses were closed. Um, did the pubs March, ever shut down? Pardon? Did the pubs ever shut down? Oh yes. Yeah. Whoa. That's mm-hmm. that. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, we the know how important the pubs are in Newfoundland, right? The need for coaching. Yes. Yeah. 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 Just poking fun. Um, so Jen, what have you, what have you, uh, learned lately that's made a big impact on you? Ah, oh, um, so many things. I think the, well, the whole parenting thing, you know, that was quite huge. Um, I think the mental health piece, uh, it's not like I didn't know about the importance of mental health before, but it's taking on new meaning as we move through all of this and in my i mean personally as well as globally so uh you know i noticed myself getting back into old habits of overworking particularly when i was working from home it was like i could never get away from it and also being in a new job i wanted to prove my value and i was quite enthusiastic about it um so all those things culminated in endless working basically. Uh, and then I noticed my boss who's great. She kept calling my attention back to like, have you been outside today or have you ridden your bike lately? And, you know, she would constantly be the one kind of reminding me, I guess maybe she could see the, you know, what was going on. And she's, she's uh, quite a healthy, you know, person. Uh, she does lots of yoga and she walks her dog and things like that. So, uh, so that was a really good thing. Also our president, we had, we got a new president this year, the college, uh, and she was sending out these messages as well about taking care of yourself and the importance of work-life balance. Um, our HR was also doing they, last month, they did this huge series about mental health. So they were offering all these sessions and, and I was getting an email every other day about it. So, you know, it all kind of started to come together where I wasn't just thinking about mental health as somebody else's, Oh, that's for somebody else. I should tell people about this. Um, it was also like me starting to 
put some of these things into practice for myself as well. Mm. So what were some, what were some suggestions they were offering for people to begin that journey? Yeah. So they, um, let me see, there were some sessions about, there was a session about burnout that I attended. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of the things are around limiting your work day. Uh, I think, actually, I think our president sent out an email in the summer saying, uh, you know, I don't want to get any emails from anybody like past 6 p.m. or something. So they kind of put a limit on that. Oh. And that seems to have maintained itself um, without any other messaging. So I think people, you know, grabbed onto that. That's nice, actually. I didn't realize how much anxiety that was producing when I was getting these, you know, emails late at night. Um, so I quite like that one. That's a really practical one. Um, but also this. Can I just jump in for a yeah. sec? Because that's interesting, too, because to, for me, that reveals two things. One, if people are emailing you late at night, that means that they're working um, yeah. or their mind hasn't shut off and disengaged from work, which is dangerous because you're just constantly in that mode. But more importantly, like when your president of an institution emails the, the whole institution says, don't email me after 6 p.m. I mean, that's obviously that's real top down kind of stuff. But when your president says that, it's, it, that sends a very clear message to the whole system. Hey, you should probably be doing this, too. And it's mm -hmm. OK to do that. Absolutely. Yeah. I also noticed her uh, that she rides her bike uh, into work, which, uh, uh, you know, I think that's another <laughs> message, you know, I'm actually living what I'm saying, get out there, get outdoors in nature, you know, move your body. All those things are super important. So it's great to see her, uh, doing that as well. It's interesting as you say that as well, I was just recalling the email that we got from our president and, um, they, the university actually gave us a mental health day after the, I think it was either before or after the Labor Day weekend. So we had that extra day. And it was interesting because I know for a lot of uh, faculty members that were preparing to teach, it was just an added layer of stress because their students now could not access any of their necessary contacts at the university. So faculty were then on their, their mental health day and having to to take all of these emails from students. So it didn't work for everyone. And yet it was a very powerful statement of recognizing that, you know, this is this at uh, this time, this is what you need. But she also said in there as well that we weren't, I think her wording was that we weren't expected to respond to emails after four o'clock. It was something around that. And um I find it so interesting when I reflect on that, that we needed permission to know that we didn't have to respond after um, four o'clock. And, and it also notified me to how um, I can remember in 2010, I worked with, I was studied with somebody who worked for BC Hydro and she was expected to have her BC Hydro phone available all weekend. She was curriculum developer for BC Hydro. And she said, it is expected that I answer all of these emails over the weekend. And, and myself um, and a few others that worked at, um, you know, in educational institutions, we were just horrified that she was expected to do that. But what I noticed was 
within 10 years, this creep had happened that sometimes on a Sunday evening, I would take that time to catch up on emails um, because I had not looked at my email all day Saturday. So when the president comes forward and says, okay, nobody answering, you're not required to answer emails after 4 p.m., they're noticing these behaviors, which, as you're saying, they they just gradually creep in. And and when somebody says, oh, have you been outside today? (laughs) I counted, I, I think I was telling Tim about this the other day, Um, not that I'm an avid step counter, but I do like to get just that token gesture of the 10,000 steps a day. But the day was so busy. I looked at it and it was dark outside and I looked at my step counter and it was 262 steps. And and because you you get up in the morning, don't you? Go to the bathroom, shower, go, you know, all of this, all this back and forth. But I actually hadn't been out of the house all day. And I cannot remember, you know, that's just so not me not leaving the house. So these things they need, they need to be brought to our attention, I think, at this time. Absolutely. Jen, what would you change if you had carte blanche? If you if you had power, what would you do? What would you change? Um I would introduce everybody at the college to coaching. I, I wouldn't make them all be coaches, but I would introduce these concepts and, and bring people into that coach approach. Um, all the things that I learned since I started on this coaching journey uh, six years ago, I think it was. Um, yeah, I, that's what I would do. I think it would change everything. What would you do first? Like, like if we said, Jen, you have carte blanche to do something and uh, what would you do first? And what would you do first, second, and third? Mm. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Big responsibility here, notes. Jen. Yeah. Okay. Well, I've got carte blanche, so I've got all the yeah. resources, no limitations. Exactly. Um, I would... I would get my favorite coaches from Royal Rose University and uh, and elsewhere to come to Newfoundland and uh, and do some some workshops, uh, introduce the concepts of coaching. Um, I would get get, uh, them to model coaching so that people can see demonstrations of what coaching actually looks like. Um, And and then I would. get people to coach each other as they, you know, bring it into the classroom and maybe observe each other, bringing these things into the classroom and then talk about it and reflect on it. You know, that's where all the, the magic happens is in, you know, not just the uh, absorbing of information, but in actually acting on it and reflecting on it and, and making changes as we go. So how does that, how do you see that folding into education? Like, how do you see that that coming together? Well, I can see the um, approach, you know, this whole leadership thing that we've been talking about. I can see faculty, you know, embracing this leadership, personal leadership and professional leadership. 
and then bringing that into the classroom with their students. So students feel seen and heard and, and understood in their in their classes and they they're not just uh, given the information, but they're actually uh, growing a, a sense of curiosity and and all these other soft skills that we talk about uh, that are so important for um, 21st century learners. Mm. Cool. Um, so many questions. And, yeah, I know. And, and really, <laughs> Jen, you're, you know, I'm just listening here and thinking this is a whole culture shift, isn't it? for behaviors and and I'm reflecting back on my masters and a first course on leadership very much the leadership styles that we were talking about were you know transactional and transformative and and you know I'm I can see when those behaviors play out at the university and obviously with the union that we we know that some some forms of leadership fall into that um, transactional but transformative just from the readings I was doing um, 10 years ago. And I have to say, I actually unloaded my bookcase a few weeks ago from all of those leadership books and I put them in a box ready to take to the, you know, the, the sharing of uh, the book club thing so somebody else could benefit from them but unfortunately my husband moved them and left them outside and I went out the other day and they are absolutely soaked through and I'm very passionate about books and I just wasn't sorry because I just thought you know these books are not they were not that helpful like things like the five dysfunctions of teams they just reinforced all of these dysfunctions I'd noticed either, you know, working within a team. But what I'm hearing is really the coaching is it falls under the umbrella of transformational leadership, transformative leadership. But it also is a toolkit, isn't it? That isn't something that um, I think it feels obtainable that we can all learn and grow from that. So it's it's. Um, you know, it, it makes me think that one of the things that was missing 10 years ago was, yes, you, you know, everybody wanted to be this transformative leader, but I don't, I'm not sure myself included as well. We really knew how to do that. We knew what not to do, mm. which makes me curious, Tim. I, did you notice when we are, when you asked Jen about her book earlier, she just swiveled round and she just took that book straight off the shelf. She didn't she? And now for those of you, obviously you can't see what's going on behind Jen, but she has this beautiful bookcase and these very nicely organized books and they're color coded. They're beautifully, <laughs> yeah. it's like a rainbow behind her. Yeah. So when Jen has finished answering all of those questions that you gave her a minute ago, Tim, before I interrupted, I'm going, I'm really curious to know what book Jen would pick second off of that bookshelf. Cause I think she know, probably knows that mm. there's another favorite there. Oh, there's so many. It's so hard <laughs> to choose. You guys always make me choose these like your favorite questions. Um, this uh, book called The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership. I think I might have mentioned this the last time. It's like a Bible, like for for organizations. Um, and it's um, yeah. So the Conscious Leadership Group 
they have this amazing website. They've been doing these gorgeous videos that you can use with your team um, for yourself. It just gets people reframing things and, and th- you know, going back to that awareness piece, like, where am I? And they have this beautiful video of a line above the line and below the line. So below the line, you're defensive and closed and, uh, you know, protecting yourself and fearful. And above the line is, you know, you're curious and playful and you can be your best self. And um, it's not about bad and good you know, or, or toxic positivity, you know, get above the line. And they always yeah. talk about that. Don't weaponize the line, you know, and it's because knowing where you are is the most important part. It's not pushing yourself to be positive or to be above the line. It's just being able to go, oh, I just heard myself say that thing. And wow, I'm really below the line today. How powerful is it? when people can recognize that I'm I, in this role, there's a lot of new things for me in this role as director. And I think one of the most surprising things to me is how other people see me. Now I'm in management and I've never had that experience before. So I'm showing up. I'm like myself. I feel I'm very authentic. I've, you know, done all this work and I feel like, I'm just, you know, I'm just one of the gang. I'm everyone else. I'm a teacher. Um, and then some, once in a while, I get an email from somebody that just, it like stings me a little bit because it's pointing a finger at me or, you know, suggesting that I've, you know, harmed them in some way or something. And, and for me, it's like, what? Oh no. Like they don't know who I am yet. Maybe. Um, and it really catches me off guard. And so, you know, going back to that emotional wake piece, it's okay. I'm, I'm able to accept criticism, but it's not necessarily the criticism that's bothering me. It's the assumptions that are made or the expectations, which I actually can't do anything about. So I'd rather have a conversation about it. Um, but I don't always get to have that back and forth uh, with people. So that's why I love this so much. If we could have these conversations more broadly within the organization, then more people would start to say, okay, so before I send Jen this email or this new director who I've never met before, um, you know, in response to this email that I've sent with some resources or telling them that they're doing a great job or something, you know, maybe they'll stop for a second and just have that pause moment and say, oh, maybe I just don't know what's going on for her. What curious question could I ask instead? Uh, And that opens up so many more possibilities than sending off a sharply worded, you know, why didn't you do this? Or, Or I'm waiting for you to do this so that I can, you know, do the things that you're telling me uh, I should. So, you know, mm-hmm. I think that 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 would be um, maybe let's add that to the carte blanche, uh, you know, the coach approach. The if cart. we could do that <laughs> to, to the cart. Yeah. <laughs> I, 
I've just got the uh, I've just got two suggestions for a title of this episode: the coach approach, <laughs> or don't weaponize the line. And I love that. Yeah, I tend to lean towards the weaponizing part because yeah. Kevin Gannon, in his book Radical Hope, um, really really good book and uh, very. Um, the, a lot of it resonated with me, but I loved, yeah, there it is. Uh, I loved <laughs> chapter eight and uh, Kevin, if you're listening, good job, brother. Chapter eight. Awesome. I love it. Don't weaponize your pedagogy or pedagogy is not a weapon. Right. And, and it just, it, the whole book is very like in your, not in your face so much, but in your, in your chest, like just kind of poking you a little bit and going, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Have you thought about the impacts of all this stuff? And um really, really good book. And it, it makes me, it makes me think about, okay, so how do I create opportunity? Like, how do I, how do I begin to this path of becoming more self-aware? Because, you know, I think if you're in education, there's a certain level of self-awareness, I'm assuming. Um, how do, how do, how do I blend this idea of becoming more self-aware to creating opportunities? Could you speak to that a little bit, Jen? Oh, can you say a bit more about? Yeah. Yeah. So the question that's been pinging around in my head is how do you, how do you create new possibilities or new opportunities? But the context that we're talking about is self-awareness and self-leadership and and growing in that depth of, you know, this is who I am in my three square feet kind of idea. So Mm. how do, how do we mesh the, the idea of becoming more self-aware to creating new opportunities for ourselves? Yeah. Oh, that's a great question. Um, for me, it's one conversation at a time. Mm. And that's kind of what you're doing with this podcast. You know, mm. it's one conversation at a time and you never know what impact you're going to have when you have that conversation. I know when I very first was introduced to coaching, it was, uh, there was, uh, a woman that I worked with amazing uh, her name's Larissa and she's in Calgary now. Um, and she had studied at Royal Rose university and she wasn't like, she wasn't like promoting coaching or anything like that, but we were, we just happened to be in some big meetings together. And when everyone else was like, do, you know, operating, uh, in their normal patterns, she would come out with just the most brilliant question. This, you know, in, in coaching, the powerful question is like a thing that you kind of practice mm. and a powerful question can be a very simple question. So it's not all this preamble, you know, some people do the preamble to the question to show how smart they are and how many things they've read. She wouldn't do that. She would just come out with this very poignant, open question. And for me, I would just stop. And it made me pause and think, and I had to know what, what is she doing? What is this trick? There's no trick to it, but you notice when somebody's different, when they show up with this mindset, with this coach approach, you can tell. So for me, it's one conversation at a time, being my authentic self and just doing what I do, which now is very unconscious, I think to me. Whereas in the beginning it was quite conscious and I had to try hard to do it. But I do notice that people respond to me differently, or sometimes they'll be like, 
oh, there's something different about this conversation. And I know because that's what I felt when Larissa was in those meetings and asking those very powerful questions. Interesting. So you, you've said authentic self a few times in, in our conversation here today. How do I become more authentic? Oh, that's a great question. So I've done a lot of work around this. This was mm. what my coaching practice was centered on. Um, and I did mention Tana Hemmonsley, who was my coach uh, from Vancouver. And she's written a whole book about authentic leadership. And she's got these amazing workbooks that you can work through. And, you know, it's very simple things, but it is being very intentional about exploring what are my values? What are my leadership principles? What do I stand for? Uh, what do other people say about me? You know, asking your, sending out an email to people and saying like, what are my strengths and being able to accept that and take that in. I think those are things that we don't necessarily do. And I do that work with my clients and it, it's different, you know, it's intentional. It's, purposeful and those are things that we need uh if we're going to show leadership we have to be open to accepting positive feedback mm -hmm. as well as negative feedback how many times do you ask people for positive feedback we tend to think it's like tooting your own horn or you know oh i can't do that it's embarrassing and i've worked with clients who in the beginning when i suggested why don't we email people these questions to see like what what do they love about you what do they think is um is your strength and at first they would go, oh, no, I definitely can't do it. And some people would quietly go away and maybe, you know, a few sessions later, they'd come back and they'd say, I did that thing that I was never going to do. I sent out, some people put it on Facebook, like a Facebook post. Uh, and they'd come back and say, well, this is what all these people said about me. And then we'd work on taking that on board. What does that mean to you? What's important about that to you? Okay. <laughs> I'd be one of those people, Jen, who walk away going flower pot, flower pot. No, I'm not doing that because, uh, well, because, <laughs> right. So interesting, isn't it though? Like you say, we always, so when we ask for feedback, we're actually thinking, okay, I'm asking this person for feedback. I trust them that they're going to be honest and they're going to tell me, what I need to work on. You know, like we're very careful about who we ask for feedback. And yet to think that feedback is always going to have not a negative connotation, but it really is around the areas that you haven't, you know, you're not excelling in or whatever. But to, I'm just thinking about um, reference letters um, and somebody not too far away from me right now um, may, may have, asked for a reference letter recently. And, and one of the things that I noticed was um, a few years back, I was looking at an opportunity and one of my colleagues said to me, well, reference letters, have you sent, you know, you, have you got reference letters? And I said, no, no, I don't need them. And she said, oh, I'm going to write you a reference letter this afternoon. And about three hours later, came this email with this reference letter and it was like, I'm reading it and just thinking, okay, who is this person talking about? 
because it's one of those times. I think it's very similar to what you're saying, Jen, that you read it and you just go, this person has thought this about me. And I had no idea, no idea at all. Um, so to even like at the, the, this moment, I'm realizing that this is an opportunity that exists out there. I've never even considered to ask somebody for positive feedback, like what do I do well? And, you know, end of the line rather than this is what you do well, but you need to work on, you know, because the times that somebody sat in your classroom and then they say to you afterwards, okay, so this was really great. This was really great. And then they just go, but, you know, and, and so you lose all of that because you start to question, did they just, you know, sugarcoat this feedback too. So to separate them, oh, how exciting. I have to go now and send emails, sorry. <laughs> do it, do it. Um, and you know, when you, when you get those course evaluations back from your students and the only thing you can think about is the negative ones. You try to figure out who said that about me or why would they say that? Why didn't they just talk to me, you know, early in the semester if that's how they felt? Um, you know, that's, that is because we're, it's human nature to, to focus on those things. And that means that we're not actually able to take on board the positive feedback that, that probably the majority of the students have, have given us in many cases, because all we're focused on is like that negative feedback as a mentor coach right now, I'm working with new coaches who are learning the, the practice and one of the things we do is we really try to focus on that strengths-based feedback and lots of them don't, they don't care, but they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. But, but get to the, you know, what's the thing I need to work on. But part of this, of my practice as a mentor coach is being able to give them positive feedback so that they can hear it and really take it on board because we want them to keep doing the things that they're doing well. We don't want them to lose that. Yeah. It's, uh, okay. Here we go. So, uh, strength-based leadership styles. There's, there are a few perspectives in that spectrum. One being focus on your strengths only. Don't worry about your deficiencies as long as they're not immoral. Right. Uh, because you only have so much energy and if you know what you're good at, get better at it because that will make you stand out in a crowd that's trying to get better. One perspective. The other perspective is strength-based leadership would say, you know what you're strong in, find out what your areas of opportunity are, start building up those areas of opportunity to help you become a more well-rounded leader. Give me your perspective on, on those two. Yeah, I don't think it's either or. Um, and I think identifying uh, areas of growth is really important for, for us as individuals. Um, in, I should say, in, when we do the mentor coaching, we do also talk about growth um, opportunities and we talk about them as they are linked to specific competencies of coaching. So, uh, you know, we make sure that it's based on something. Uh, so that is important as well, because, you know, um, one of the comments that I get back sometimes from instructors is that the student evaluations you know, they're, when they say negative things, they can be quite hurtful, but they don't know what it means to be a teacher. They're not teachers, generally. Our students are not 
experienced teachers. Um, so, you know, what are they basing this feedback on? It's their own personal experience um, and it can have quite an impact on the instructor. So, you know, thinking about feed forward, it's really important. Um, strengths as uh, something that can also have a shadow side is, is another awareness to, to bring to this conversation because I might be, you know, a very uh, optimistic person. Uh, that might be something that I think is a strength. I might be, you know, able to see lots of opportunity in things, um, but that can, that, that can also have a, a shadow side. And it can mean that maybe I spend too much time in the ideation phase or looking for possibilities. And, and then I'm not able to um, complete tasks or, or take action on things. So there, there's always, you know, this kind of balance that we need to strike with things that we're very good at or that we really like to do because we are good at them uh, and things that need to be done or that are in service to the people that we're here for. So how do you how do you help somebody work through the vulnerability of sending emails out? Because as you were describing that process, I'm thinking about my own life and going, OK, I tend not to hang around people that I don't like. Right. I tend not to hang around people who have, you know, who find it easy to pick out my weak points. And I think that's normal. I, normal in the sense of most everybody is in that boat. It's a vulnerable thing to begin asking some of that crowd to give you feed forward or feedback. And I'm not sure that all of us have enough friends who would be gently brutal or gent, let me tell you, gently authentic in their assessment of those areas of opportunity for you. So how do you work through the vulnerability of that practice with, with your, with your, uh, with your people? Well, the exercise that I'm talking about in particular is, it, you know, the questions are generally, uh, you know, what, what are my strengths and what are the gifts that I bring into the world? And another question is, what do you think I would be doing if I weren't doing the thing that I'm doing now? So it's nothing about what am I doing wrong or what's bad about me or what are my weaknesses? It's just about, <laughs> it's just focused on these things. So yeah. what I would suggest, you know, for clients who are resistant to that, first of all, I say, you know, it's totally up to you do it or don't do it. This is a something that can bring value to people if they want to do it. Uh, so it's totally optional. Um, but the other thing is try it out with one person that you trust. It doesn't have to be tons of people. Send it to one person and see what comes back. There's no timeline to it. You know, you can try one person now, you can wait till next year to do it. Uh, it, it doesn't matter. So it's, it's also knowing yourself and, and uh, knowing how vulnerable you, you want to be in this. Because there's some fear in this, right? Because we all want to be validated, right? Like we all, we all have a need to be validated. It's, again, it's a spectrum on, on how heavy that need rests on people's hearts. But everyone, I think, wants to be told what they're doing well and how they're doing it well. And because it, it, there's, a, there's a good dopamine hit when that happens. And, and we love that. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Can I just hop in there and just, I'm wondering, I'm going to hop in there 
because I know time's running out. Jenna, you're saying that about those questions, really powerful questions there in that email. I'm thinking along the lines of with our students, when our students give us feedback on our, you know, a course at the end of the, the um, semester, they're not qualified to speak about some of the things that they actually put in, in those uh, evaluations. And so I'm thinking, as you said, you know, we need to be very selective about who we actually ask these questions to um, because not everybody has thought about in, in such in such a deep way about what your gifts are, what would you doing? They, they, they wouldn't be able to dissect what it is that you do well. They're just like, oh yeah, she's great at that job or he does a great job on that. You know, what does this mean? What, what are these elements of this person that make this great? So to find somebody that has that quality, those qualities, it seems to me like that will take time um, so that you don't receive an email back saying, you have gorgeous hair. I love the way you dress, you know, <laughs> because really they are things that people say, oh, I've always noticed that, you know, uh, and I remember years ago, like when I was about 19, my friend and I were going out for the evening and her mom came in and said, oh, you two look lovely. You look absolutely lovely. And we were, you know, 19 and pretty, you know, hard on ourselves about it. And she said to her daughter, look, you have absolutely beautiful eyes, beautiful blue eyes. And then she said, and Sally, you have lovely hands. <laughs> I mean, what 19 year old wants to be told by somebody's mother that they have? lovely hands oh that'll come in handy when I walk in the nightclub then won't it <laughs> yeah so I'm just thinking about how deliberate we need to be about who we send these emails to yeah and and how much space you give it in your head once you do get the feedback uh, as well um, mm -hmm. which can be tough. But I think with the students, that's an important piece because we do have these course evaluations. And one of the, the things that I do with instructors is, um, or that I have done in the past, is uh, to get them to get feedback early on. So, you know, doing that some kind of uh, instructional feedback, uh, either, you know, midterm mid or just before midterm, uh, that's a really good way for you to help. Um, and again, it is vulnerable. Um, but th that's a good thing for building relationships with your students, for finding out what it is that they like and don't like or what they think they need. It also gives you an opportunity to address those things in person before it you know, shows up as this random comment on your course mm -hmm. evaluation. So there's that education piece, too, about, you know, here's a little bit of language for you to know or you know even you know metacognition about learning and and how we learn that i'm going to share with you as 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 your teacher um so that you can understand why i'm doing the things that i'm doing or why i'm not doing the things that you want me to do and here's you know the limitations of that mm -hmm. i think the midterm um evaluation informally evaluation is very empowering as well I know a few years ago, I learned to ask the, you know, the three questions 
what is one thing I can do to improve your experience? What's one thing that you can do? Mm. And so then it, you know, there's that more evening of uh, accountability there, but also the question, what would you like to tell me that I haven't asked you? And I found that that, that really sets a completely different tone in the classroom. The sooner that that goes out, you know, around the six week mark changes. Yeah. That's mm. a great question. Yeah, uh, I'm gonna have to write that one down. Okay. <laughs> Great therapy session. All right, Jen, one more question. One more question. Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> what what has been absolutely confirmed for you lately? Um, everybody has an impact. Hmm. Everybody makes a difference. You might not think that you do. Uh, I had this poster on my door. Uh, of my office in Qatar from um, Jane Goodall. And it is, you probably heard it before. You cannot get through a single day without having an impact on the world around you. What you do makes a difference and you have to decide what kind of difference you want to make. Perfect. Thanks, Jane. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Jane. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> all right well thanks so much jen for taking the time to be on the show today giving thank you a, giving me a good therapy session i got a lot of questions <laughs> mm -hmm. a lot of things to work through as we walk away but uh, i am going to dedicate my christmas break to reading two of the books that you've mentioned today mm -hmm. jen <clears throat> and i really hope we'll have will this be a trilogy where we get to bring jen back and then We'll have different questions from the readings that we've mm, done. Yeah. Well, hey, if we have if we have Jen back too soon, we'll have to start paying her consulting rate. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> but uh, no, it's my pleasure. And we still <laughs> haven't talked about cycling. I, girl, I know. I, I even had it on my list about you know your ultra sport <laughs> oh, experience. Yeah. And I want to say this out loud. I'm training to walk a marathon. I'm, wow yeah. good for you yeah so i started this week so i this morning was my third session so no big applauses yet because third third session and you know a hundred but you know it's all good so i'm yeah i'm so looking good. at walking 26.2 miles and, incredible uh, yeah mm -hmm. i thought you know why why not do something crazy but um yeah all good so i just wanted to Ooh. say that out loud to the to the whole you're on the hook now. Podcast yeah. universe. Do you have a plan? Is there like a... Come on, Sally, you know me. Yeah, of course you have a plan. <laughs> of course, of course plan. he has a plan. <laughs> Don't just randomly pick this up. Well, this is exciting. Yeah. It's, it's really almost, exciting. It's, it's hard to get up at 10 to 5 to go for a walk, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. it's uh, whatever. Soon you won't be going to bed. Why don't you to get up to doing the training for 20 miles you're just gonna have to leave at 11 at night and still be walking come into the podcast yeah well i, I watched yeah. these two dudes do uh, a 24-hour walk right and they 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 documented the whole thing from and they they started at uh when did they start nine in the morning and then so they went through the whole night obviously in nine in the morning and I, I know that they planned their route out because they, they ended the, they ended the session at the same spot that they started. So they had to have planned out their route, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but it was insane. Like by the time they were at three in the morning, like they were talking gibberish. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and then by five in the morning, six in the morning, they're like, they're like back on and they're focused because they knew that the end was coming. Right. 
And even now in my silly little version of that, meaning, you know, I'm not walking the huge distances yet. I, I get that. I get that rush. Like when I turn that final corner and I know I'm on that home stretch, yeah. there's an energy there. And I remember that going up and being there all the way back to junior high. Cause I hated track running. I've always loved cross country, but I mm-hmm, hated track. Like too. I hated running around the track. It just, it's like running on a treadmill for me. It's like, what's, what's the point? I mean, come on, really? Like you're not going anywhere and the scenery's <laughs> not changing. This is just abs. You know, people keep running by you. You just want to push them over. But, um, <laughs> so, but on the track, when I would get around that final corner, I would always sprint because it was like, I can see the finish line and I want to get there. And I, and part of it was, I would just want to, I just want this thing to finish. Right. <laughs> but anyway, I'm rambling, but anyway, it's yeah, very so. relatable. Well, so I, mm-hmm. I've done some 24 hour uh, mountain bike races, so we can also talk about that. Oh, that'd be cool. Yeah. I was just going to mention that I've been a spectator at some of those as well. What? Um, yes. Yeah. 24 hour mountain bike races are a thing and it's quite interesting crowd as well. So <laughs> are you, are you there the whole time, 24 hours and you're up 24 hours? Like when, when they're doing it, like. Really? Yes. As a spectator. Yes. <laughs> well, I'd be like two in the morning. Get, <laughs> in my blanket and pillow. Get it and, easy, don't they? I mean, you know, I don't believe I was there for all 24 hours, but um, yeah, <laughs> they're, they're, you know, they're good events. And, and in England, um, Dean did a 24 hour fell running um, event. What? Where it's fell running, F E L L, and and I think that's how it's spelled. <laughs> anyway, the fells are the rolling hills. Oh, okay. I was gonna say, mm-hmm. what you fall down every certain, yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> you just throw yeah. yourself to the ground. That seems kind of self defeating, mm-hmm. but and I okay. remember him and his friend the next day not actually being able to walk downstairs. <laughs> yeah, they actually had to walk down the stairs yeah. sideways, like one, yeah. one step. That's what I'm not looking forward to because I'm, you know, I'm. I've power lifted for a long time and leg day. It was fun mm. while you're doing it, but the next two days after leg day, you just, yeah, you can't do anything. <laughs> you're going to have to get some yoga going as well. We've, yeah. we've really Can gone you see off a rhino here. like me doing yoga? <laughs> Come on. Come on. Anyway. So next time, Jen, when you're here, we're starting at this point. This is the point we're picking up right here. Tim Carson's marathon. This is where we're going to begin. We're going to hear about Jen's biking experiences. This is why I I should have pressed stop recording about eight minutes (laughs) ago. Our listeners are like, what? What are you doing? You had such a good session on coaching and now you're talking about that. What are you doing? Anyway, (laughs) thanks so much, Jen, for being on the show. Really love it and love talking to you. And uh, we got to have you back. I mean, got to have you back. So I would love to come back. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks again for tuning in and listening to the podcast. We really appreciate you taking the time to uh, sit down and share this space with us. And uh, we look forward to uh, the next couple episodes because we're creeping up to number 50 and we're going to have a celebration episode for number 50. So looking forward to that. And I guess you got to keep tuning in to listen to my uh, updates on my walk a marathon. Anyway, take care. We'll see you uh, next week and uh, be safe.